and we can edit accordingly. Oh, big sigh for another episode of PhD of podcast, podcast about academia, culture, and social justice across the STEM humanities divide and the very big divide of the Atlantic Ocean. And from London, I'm Dr. <laughs> Zain Yao, representing the humanities. Yeah, and I'm Dr. Liz Wayne, representing STEM and also America. <laughs> Sorry, United States of America. <laughs> the rest of the, the continents uh, appreciate that. Uh, but this is sort of like United a, a check. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. No, that's it. Just an apology to, to all the other people in North America that we have we have let down. Well, post-November election, I mean, people thought that things would be a landslide, but they weren't. But it could have, it could have, it's not quite the, it's not the worst outcome, at least. Knock on wood. Mm, yeah, I, I think, um, I don't, <laughs> we don't have to talk about politics, but I've never understood the landslide argument. It's like, do you have, do you know who lives next door to you? Because mm. that's never been, I've, I've never thought this was going to be a landslide. I thought I was terrified because of how close it was mm-hmm. and how like Trump really could have won. Um, mm-hmm. That was clear to me. It's always been clear to me that he could win. But I know that there's this, there are people who think it could have been and they're kind of upset that it wasn't. And I kind of don't have time for those people. Notably, the people I know who thought it was going to be a landslide were white. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would agree with this assessment. Mm-hmm. Um, so in this episode, um, we're, we're kind of thinking of um, today's uh, American Thanksgiving. And we were thinking about giving thanks. And um, Zion and I have not done an episode together in a while. So we thought this would be a great opportunity to do something special for our listeners to, you know, give thanks to each other give thanks to the people in our lives and to give thanks to you guys, our listeners who have been standing by us for five years or more. So thank you guys. Yeah. It's like, definitely. It's like the the one good part of this genocidal. um, Yeah. Holiday. Genocidal. Okay. Yeah. You're right. You're right. Okay. 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 Yeah. Well, there's like a lot of pieces that go around about like pointing out the Wampanoags um, who were the ones who greeted the pilgrims or, alive and well and they've actually had their lands i believe like contested by the trump administration so i think it's a very active battle that's going on and there's a lot about the way that like thanksgiving Mm -hmm. only really became a holiday i think in the mid 20th century as part of this like deliberate prop like propaganda nostalgia for consolidating the sort of white ethno state of america Uh, i have colleagues who've done much better work on this than i have but that is the gory history of that thanksgiving and it's funny because of course in canada we have thanksgiving but it's a completely different time of year and yet we still use like i remember in school using pilgrim images and unfortunately in our side it's no less genocidal mm-hmm. but maybe yeah. one th- yeah. one thing for our listeners if you don't know about it i highly recommend there's a website and an app called native land Uh, I think the website is nativeland.ca, but it is this crowdsourced project to show whose indigenous, whose land you're on um, traditionally. And it it does this really good breakdown of all the different indigenous peoples who 
whose land it was traditionally or who have been dis- dispossessed on that land, as well as all the treaty rights. And so, yeah, strongly urge you to go and check that out and give thanks to them as well. Yeah, that's a really great resource. Thanks for sharing that, Zine. So, yeah, it's very hard to ignore the premise of this holiday. Um, I almost wish that we could make it something else, but, you know, add it to the list of things that does things because it's 2020. <laughs> um, mm, mm, such a metaphor. <laughs> Well, I guess it's sort of funny because it's sort of like, well, Thanksgiving obviously is an annual thing and it's been going on for a long time. So it's like 2020 obviously is a disastrous year, but so much of it has been so ongoing and that for for many of us structurally, people have always known that their things are bad, but then 2020 was the year when like that became visible to even the privileged parts of the population, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And um, as, as academics, certainly the world has looked very different. Um, I think what I really hear is how stressed we are and how we never really got a break. I mean, you, we never truly get breaks. Like the summer is like a fallacy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we use the summer to do, to catch up on work. Um, and because of how COVID has been working out, like, at least as a, or a scientist who does experimental work, the labs are all shut down. But then in the summer, we, we had to figure out how to open the labs back up. And it's taken a lot of effort to, to manage that, to help students, I think. There's this whole... I, I would argue that there's been a trend to have more... to have advisors be more cognizant of mental health and I think that COVID has pushed this other need to have that mental health conversation um, because students are not doing well under this regime, but honestly, neither are faculty mm-hmm. and neither universities. And I think it's been a lot of, a lot of stress to manage all of that. Um, yeah. Definitely. And I think, well, on the humanity side, just not having labs go back to, and so we're not high priority for getting back onto campus is the fear of, that that's any sort of decrease in the number of students would definitely impact the humanities. Like I'm very lucky that um, because UCL is prestigious, like our enrollments have still been high, but I know that there's definitely universities in the UK and I'm sure in North America where enrollment has been low. So like English, like people are being fired, particularly in the humanities, English departments are, are being threatened to being cut. Humanities departments in general are, are under threat of being cut. So there's also this really weird, real sense that as our listeners know, like academia has been incredibly precarious and now even more so we're seeing this really brutal logic of the of neoliberal higher education just deciding who's worth having or not worth having. And what was scary is like, even at the very beginning of lockdown, I remember some universities that were already financially shaky were already starting to fire people, even though they didn't even know yet that they weren't going to have enough students. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's happened also in STEM and it's happened- at schools that are really highly ranked as well as ones that are not. I mean, in the summer we had conversations about budget, like cutting our own salaries and we let go of staff members and um, it was really rough. And the message essentially was pay more of your own salary through grants and 
that's problematic because you know we have to figure out how we're going to have more time to write grants how we're going to write successful grants without data data needs we have means we have to be in lab so it's like a chicken and egg question and also you know going without salary <laughs> you know um some faculty already are paying three months of their salary if not up to six months or nine months of their their month their yearly salary um from soft money. So if they don't raise the money, then they don't have a salary. Um, and these are for tenure track positions. And so, yeah, I definitely have heard the gamut of people struggling to, to pay themselves, to pay their um, students. And um, certainly staff members have not been exempt from this process. And it's been, yeah, I think that's been really challenging to figure out where's your North, where's your center and your focus here. Mm-hmm. And where do you look to for care? Because definitely, I think the dilemma is like our students, as you said, both students and, and staff, academic and professional staff are all beleaguered. And our students turn to us for what in the UK they call pastoral care, which is very like mm-hmm. priest-like <laughs> and very shepherdy. But like mm-hmm. we, but we are not licensed mental health care professionals. And mm-hmm. like, I think that there's no institution, I think, in the world that has adequate mental health resources that I've been to. And now I've been in institutions in Canada, all across Canada, the the US and the UK. And before COVID, they they never had enough counselors for students. Mm -hmm. So now there's a push, but like, you know, it's like a a drop in the bucket. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I think one of the things you said was kind of relevant or important, I think, which is that we aren't, as a faculty member, like we aren't trained mental professionals and I do think that there's needs there is this conversation that needs to happen um where we discuss what we actually want faculty to do as in I think it's appropriate for faculty to be aware of mental health issues I don't think it's appropriate for faculty to somehow have to then become mental health professionals because Mm -hmm. we're gonna inherently mess that up if we are not trained to do that because we are going through our own stressors Um, and so when it comes to talking with students, I, I kind of take that approach where, um, I, I do whatever I can to listen to them and figure out like what we can mitigate in terms of the research program that they're in, what strategy we have then. But then I also bring the conversation back around to say like, well, what are you doing to manage this? you know, like what friend networks do you have? Who have you told about these issues? Because what I've, something I find is that students kind of don't talk, like they don't reach out and they aren't like kind of trying to change their schedules to sort of help themselves. And I find that part of what I try to do is get them to talk about that. And also, you know, you can't just only talk to me. So I need to know that there's a friend that you have and your same like power dynamic level, who you're talking to about this. Um, do you have a mental care professional? And if you don't, is there a reason why? Because I, because what I can do is try to help figure out how to get you those resources. Mm-hmm. So I try to do all the steps to kind of do the accountability to, to make sure they're making their plans and that they're thinking about their things and that they are aware of their trigger points, but not actually trying to be their therapist and not a, and also making clear I'm not their therapist and 
I have issues as well, but I'm not going to tell you my issues because again, Mm -hmm. you know, you're not my therapist either. Mm -hmm. And we haven't even begun to touch on, I guess, like the, the way that I think we are seeing institutions respond to student demands inspired by Black Lives Matter. And now that we're like a number of months away from the initial protests uh, or the reignition of protests, especially and awareness, and especially among non-Black people globally, like what does the work of change actually look like after all the letters go out? And I think the boring answer of what change looks like sometimes is just like lots of committee meetings, but it's like, that's (laughs) where all the necessary work happens, but it's so not sexy and so not glamorous, but that's where the actual change happens. Like the committees and subcommittees for all the different items that have to be dealt with. Yeah, no, that's, that's spot on. Um, I think that people, so let me be more clear, I guess, students aren't often in those meetings. And so they are like, well, what's happening? What are you guys doing? So it looks like you're just having a meeting. And um, it's kind of interesting to to um, remember what that felt like as a student and then having my first taste of being at the table and going, oh, 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 wow. Okay. (laughs) You know, seeing the change and then seeing like the hindrances to change, um, but then also being able to at least see some progress or like you're trying to learn the political landscape and you're trying to learn like who, who are the, who are the people that are, you know, it's not, it's easy to convince them versus ones who are harder to convince and might need pushing in other directions. So it definitely is political, the things that are happening. And um, I think what I was, what I'm thinking about too, is that I have tried when I'm talking to students to kind of help them understand how to wield and use power and also understand the power structures. Mm-hmm. Because what I what I what I find is that, um, you know, like like it can be it can be helpful to like well students, if you were, if you say this this will help me when I get to my committee meeting. Yes. Right. Yes. Um, well, students, I, I I I like that you are being loud, but what that the particular loud that you're being right now. I can tell you for a fact it's not going to go anywhere. But if you did this kind of loud, and here's why, it might be helpful. And so I think getting people to kind of understand what the actual, where the actual fight is happening and, and how they can use our voice for the fight has been really meaningful to me, mm-hmm. um, particularly as I find some other meetings like not really happening, um, trying to get people engaged in their civic duties, I guess I would say, mm-hmm. because- some people don't understand that that's actually what's happening. Yeah. And definitely like I, so I think it'd be sort of interesting to say how many different, well, for lack of a better word, diversity, exclusion, whatever inclusion, like we know that there's problems with these terms, but nonetheless, these, this is the banner under which we have to be under to get work done. Like how many organizations are you sitting on as different committees? Do you think? Um, Formally. mm. Mm. Um, well, you know, I'm actually just trying to answer that because I don't think it's, let me, so I, I will just say that I'm on a committee at my university and then, um, and that's it. I mean, I, I'm doing like, a, I'm, 
we're, I'm doing some science things, but I'm not doing DEI things. So I'm not being asked to, I'm not on some like the diversity committee of my scientific society, oh, as an okay. example. Um, I, I'm organizing a conference about COVID. And then once that's done, I'm out and then <laughs> I'm giving some talks. Um, so I'm actually not doing a lot of that. Like I'm not on committees, just committees for committee's sake. And some of that is, I don't think I've been asked a lot of times, but also um, when I do get asked to do things, I go straight to my advisors, like my mentors and go like, do you think this is a good idea? And then we talk about it and I'm like, okay. (laughs) And I'm like, okay, I'm not doing it. And I'm just going to say no. Um, Oh, you're, you're much better than me. So I'm on. How many committees are you on? (laughs) Oh my God. So I'm on, I'm heading the one for my department, which is new. Um, I'm on at least two UCL wide ones for different things. One is for the eugenics inquiry. One is for the general um, race, race uh, quality advisory group. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, and there's like sometimes some smaller subcommittees in that. So I'm, that I'm on as well. And then I'm on another one for one of my academic organizations. That's a smaller committee. And then I'm on the executive of yet another one of my academic organizations that I'm also dealing similar work for. Okay. Is your list still, are you still adding to this list? I think there's probably stuff that's informal, but like, so that this is the stuff now that at least I could put, I was, this is stuff I care about and that maybe I was doing in other fashions without being able to put on my CV, but at least now I can put on my CV. Hmm. Do you think that's a lot? I guess so when I say it out like that. And I also organized a whole week that was inspired by Black Lives Matter for all of the arts and humanities faculty at the very start of the year, which is also when I first started my first big administrative position managing our, our master's degree. So that was a very stressful week for me. Hmm. Yeah, I um, I had a very stressful summer. The, a lot of the social unrest led to a lot of, a lot of um, fast action. Um, like I think there was this big push to say something and to get them a message out there. And um, yeah, so there were a lot of work. I was having like two hour meetings with like one hour or more side talk conversations with individuals. So I'm like two or three meetings outside of our meetings. And then I finally decided that was too much work. Um, and um, because I was in, I'm a joint department member, I was effectively like having, I was on a college level committee that then I would try to do to interact with my departments. So it was like I was on three committees. And so I dropped the college level committee and said, I will just work for one department. So I'm on one committee now. And um yeah, and that was something I like intentionally did because I thought like, well, you know, the work's going to go back down, but, and it was really great to actually really know what was happening and why and like mm. have my voice like be heard and also learning some really interesting political, um, learning about politics early on. Because I think some people will, the benefit of going on a college committee earlier is that you kind of do learn a lot about your institution very, very quickly. Mm. It might have taken me five or seven, whatever long years to be able to get that kind of um, interaction with these like senior level faculty. 
Um, but on the other hand, my job is to make sure my lab is okay to get it up and running. My job is to make sure that I am stable as a, as a human being. So, cause this job is grueling and you know, you get more and more work as you move forward in this career. So I, I, I was like, well, I'm not going to waste my opportunity, my junior faculty years of being able to just like say that I'm a junior faculty by pushing it forward by saying, I want to be in the spotlight of all of this stuff. Um, I forgot some other things I'm doing as well. <laughs> okay, Zai. All right. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I'm also with, with a colleague, um, a white ally, organizing the speaker series throughout the year, bringing in scholars of color to talk about their work um, across, from the medieval era up through the present. Um, and I also set in motion a couple of student initiatives and that the students are running them, but they still check in with me. So I, I still have managerial responsibility to some extent. Both there's one for settler colonialism and indigeneity, which is really awesome. And they're doing all these like talks and seminars. And the other one is what we call the decolonial forum where students like self-organize and teach each other about, about issues and talk about texts that they wouldn't otherwise in the course. But I also try to drop by all these things as well as running my own speaker series. Hmm. Yeah, this is really interesting. So do you have mentors that you talk about with about when you decide which things you're going to do and not do? Kind of like I do have a mentor assigned because I, I reached out through my scholarly organization for 19th century Americanists. And sometimes I check in, but part of the problem is because all these things are for change that I know that I feel like has to happen. And if I don't do it, I don't think it will happen in some of these circumstances. So I kind of feel trapped. Like I think it's important work and I get a lot of out of it, but then I have very little time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's kind of interesting um, because it needs to happen. The question is, does it have to happen now? And does it have to happen directly through you? Um, but yeah, I mean, it seems like a lot that you're doing and like worrying about the time and stuff and your own scholarship and making room for your life yourself. But um, yeah, yeah, this really brings home I do yeah, need better life work balance. balance. Say yeah. what? This brings home that I really do need better work life balance. Like I'm getting more and more perspective on it, but like I will just die young if I continue this. Yeah. I mean, I don't want that to happen, but <laughs> but I am just, I'm just an observer from across the pond observing that some of the initiatives that you're doing aren't even that closely aligned with your research initiatives. Um, like you're being very broad right now. Yeah. Yeah. And I think saying, I mean, I think I understand it's valid to say that you're one of the people who know you can make, you know, you can make it happen, but I'm also hearing you kind of like, make a pinhole, make a bottleneck, making yourself the bottleneck where like, if you don't do it, it's not going to get done where maybe that bottleneck isn't as bottlenecky. It depends in what, it depends in which arenas. In some cases, they're literally, I, I, there's no one else. There is no one else. But then that's the thing to think about. So yeah. if you can acknowledge that it depends, then 
use that to make your decisions? In mm-hmm. which cases is there actually a bottleneck? And in which cases are there actually not? Because if you have, if there are things that where you're not like, you're like, okay, there could be other things. You, you also have to, I mean, that's an opportunity to say, I, I don't, not now, like not now, right? Not like, not never, but certainly not now or, or timing. Or I mean, honestly, even if you're the one that needs to have it done, that like there's your own clock that has to also work in there. But am I, am I capable of doing that right now? Because if you're not, like, even if you're the one that needs to get it done, it doesn't mean you should always say yes. Yeah. But I was also like, I can't go out. My work or my ho- is my hobbies. I know this is terrible ro- logic, but sometimes it yeah, feels it like feels that. Yeah, like you're not listening to what I'm saying. I know, I know. I'm really bad. And you're not the only person who's trying like, to tell I me this. Just, like, yeah. I mean, as long as you hear yourself, I'm fine. I know. I just, like, I don't think of myself as a masochist, but mm-hmm. I think there's just... There is such, even though I am logically critical of it, there's such a martyrdom mentality with so much social well, justice stuff. That martyrdom because you are definitely being a martyr right now. I know, and I know it's wrong, but it's very, <laughs> it's very hard to get out of. It's very hard to get out of. You know I'm recording, right? <laughs> I know, I know. This is our listeners hearing me just process, and mm-hmm. maybe this sounds familiar to a lot of people because maybe you're the martyrs, or if you haven't thought about it, like consider the people that you know who are doing this work. That of course they care about it, but also sort of feel trapped in the fact that they have to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But to switch gears to something cheerful, like you were saying, <laughs> <laughs> like enough with my issues. How about we go to Lincoln's triumphs? <laughs> or as I think we mentioned, um, Liz ended up getting, and I, I know that we announced across all the podcast social media, like Liz got some of the, the rapid COVID grants. And I saw that you've been getting some good results. Uh, no. Oh, sorry. Um, that, just, that's too stressful. Too on the nose. She's trying to switch the attention to me. If you guys, I think you guys know what she's doing. You know what she's doing. <laughs> I'm trying to celebrate yeah. you. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. 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 <laughs> so people are going to leave this conversation. Like Liz is being a bitch. And, um, <laughs> no. And uh, so, yes, I won an NSF rapid grant. And what's really ironic about this is that I'm trying to do work to better understand COVID. And yet COVID is a thing that makes work so hard. (laughs) So (laughs) like the reason why we have COVID is the reason why I got the grant and why it's so hard to come into labs. So an experimental scientist trying to work in a lab space, density is an issue. And so we have to um, share the lab space with other people. So that means like three hours a day, four hours a day, something like that, Um, you know, three days a week. And then we get like eight to five on, you know, two days of the week. And, you know, cells don't care about your timing. (laughs) And so it's been really challenging to get things started and to get things moving and then it feels like when you get things moving, there's always that fear that everything's going to shut back down again because if somebody gets COVID in your vicinity, you, like you have to be willing to walk away from everything, like right then. Um, as in, like you have to kill yourself, you have to start over again. So there's a anxiety around that. Um, we are getting some things going, and we're getting some results, but a lot of science 
is, um, it's like a mountain that you're building up to. And when you reach the summit, it's beautiful. That's like when you have the data and you can like publish and present about like, yeah, we actually understand what happened. But the majority of it is like false peaks. Like, you know, when you're hiking and then you think you're at the summit and it's like, nope, just another turn. Um, <laughs> this is exactly what, what research feels like. And, you know, trying to keep the students motivated, trying to actually train them because my lab is new. And so my students were in lab for two months and then the lab shut down because of COVID. So we're just so new and still trying to train people and trying to like teach people how to troubleshoot and how to order and making sure that they're not, I guess, as a mentor doing things that will like delay them by like in a normal time period, delay them by six months. But because of COVID, we're talking about like a year or more delay. And I think that is it's really challenging. Um, I think maybe in a year, I'll be able to say like what data I have, but Right now, like, I'm just happy when we get, like, a plasmid to work, when we get, when we get cells that are still alive and no contaminations. Um, Woo. Yeah. Yeah, so it's working, but I, I think if you're an experimental scientist, this definitely, you know, you would resonate with this. It is extremely challenging, and it's really challenging for a new lab where I'm not allowed to go back to my office, and so... I either need to be at home at my computer so I can take these stupid meetings on Zoom or I need to be able to be in lab to, you know, help my students do some things. And it's hard. It can't do both. Mm. Yeah. If I can commiserate. So it's, it's obviously not equivalent to being in lab, but I was doing research for a new essay and some texts were only available in the British library. And before we went into lockdown again, Basically, the British Library was only allowing people to book one three-hour session a week, and there's a limited number of slots. So once they all went live on a Thursday, if you didn't get your slot for the week, then you know you couldn't get anything. But even if you got a th- three-hour slot, you could only get five books at a time. And so, like, just what that does for the pace of research was absolutely agonizing. And one of my three-hour slots, the fire alarm went off. And you can no. just see that all these researchers were just like, we are just going to ignore the siren until they tell us to go. We're going to keep on yeah. taking our notes. And then finally we got um, herded outside and you could just feel everyone's reluctance being like, no, let us burn. Mm. And then as we're waiting outside and of course they couldn't, like we also had to spread out. It started raining and of course we couldn't cluster <laughs> together. So a lot of us had to be out in the rain. <laughs> it was just, uh and I was thinking, like, I wanted to just, I was thinking, I should just go home. But then I realized because it's the British Library, like, I had to lock off my stuff for security. So I was like, I don't even have my wallet. I'm stuck here in the rain. It, it was it was miserable. That's a lot. I mean, that's just, that, that's a lot. Yeah. But I do have good news on the research front, too, surprisingly. Um, so my, my book will be coming out for the fall 2021 Duke University Press catalog. Yeah. So I'm Yay. very proud about that. Got my book manuscript back to the to my readers. They signed it off. I'm really excited. And hopefully we'll do an episode talking about that. It's all about unfeeling. And I think it, it draws a lot for me on the the conversations that we have in the podcast in terms of how we think about imagining like managing our emotional lives for the sake of mm-hmm. survival. Yeah. Yeah. Can I get an advanced copy so I can read it so you can talk about it on the podcast? 
I I could see if I could pull some strings, Liz. I mean, I'll pay for, for it, like too. Your... I'm going to buy an actual copy as well. It's just like, if we want to talk about it beforehand, you know. Yeah, my and promos. But yeah, I got that. And I have quite a few essays that will be forthcoming in volumes from Cambridge University Press um, about feminism, gender, queer theory, trans studies. And so I'm very excited about those as well. Yay. That's exciting. That's very, 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 very exciting. So and I want to also allude to the, um, you know, as so some of the challenges you're mentioning are also the challenges, like you don't have to be an experimentalist to be suffering from COVID. I mean, even my computational STEM friends are still struggling because just because you're at home doesn't mean that's a space that you work in mm-hmm. <laughs> or like maybe you have a bigger computer in your office or like being able to talk to other people about your ideas and like how to actually write the program correctly is still important. So I think there's often been this idea that um, the experiment, the computational people are doing much better than the experimental people. And, and it, it might be, I don't think overall, overall we'll have to see because they're both still struggling or if someone still be able to do their work, it doesn't mean they're not suffering in some way. Mm-hmm. Especially it's very gendered, of course, like who are the caregivers for children or for any other people who need care? Typically, there's been quite a few studies and we've shared them through the um, through the podcast social media showing that there's been very clear effects even the first couple of months about the number of journal submissions by people who identify as women versus men. Yeah. 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 And they're also wondering about the racial impact that like people of color um, just in of Black and Indigenous, Latinx, and Asian have all been shown to be overwhelmingly affected by COVID generally. And you have to sort of wonder that even for faculty, that means that probably they're in the communities that where they're more likely to know, have loved ones who are also affected, even if they aren't themselves. And so I wonder mm-hmm. what, what that data is going to look like, too, in terms of how it's impacted people, um, faculty of color and particularly like faculty of color who are not men, right? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't quite feel at liberty to talk about that. W- what I'm really trying to say is that um, quite often, there's so few people of color in academia and STEM places, especially. Um, I think the numbers are slightly higher for anyway, for humanities, but um, the numbers can get so small that it's like, oh, I know who you're talking about. And in general, I find that my the stories that I collect um I never get to talk about because to talk about like someone else's experience, one, I don't have the access to do that, but two, like we're just so few of us, <laughs> like you would know. Um, but I do know people in academia who, who've like really been impacted, like first order family, second order family. And, um, like my my dad's hometown, basically COVID has like run through it. So like all of his first cousins and um, people are, you know, whole families dying of COVID. Um, yeah, it is it is quite challenging. A lot of things, even like um, financial things, like because who works those salary jobs that mm-hmm. they just can't work from home, and. So I, I worry about that, deal with that. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's definitely a thing. Definitely a thing we worry about. Mm-hmm. 
I guess it's one of those things also where I worry about, and I think we talked about this in um, our episode with Carissa to some extent too, is like, like you need to have data to argue for policy, but sometimes it's so hard to collect the data or there's like so many problems with how you're trying to collect the data that can also have negative impacts as well. And things Absolutely. like, yeah. And things like just filling out these surveys, even in your institutional level, like I've now been extremely wary of ha- knowing that if I self-identify as say being Chinese in the humanities, that means like I'm one of two people. So like they, like there's, exactly. even though it's supposed to be anonymous, like they know who this result is from on the survey. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And you know, this isn't really specific specific to COVID, but um, you know, even thinking about students that talk to me, um, sometimes like I don't know what to do with these conversations, like besides a therapist, because it ends up being like, well, what if there's only one black person in the program, or what if there's like even what if there's like three or four, right? Um, it's it becomes like not as safe, so it's safer than to talk to me. But in terms of like, how do I handle the situation? How do I deal with my own feelings about having to handle the situation? Um, how do I just deal with the stories that I'm hearing? Like, how do and how do I do that ethically? Um, becomes kind of challenging. Or, you know, I think on some levels, people use social media to kind of vent. The like, the idea is, you know, it's like a a, a space where you're not really talking to one person specifically. You're just kind of like putting ideas out there and it's like not safe to do that. <laughs> um, because there's just only so many students and it, that's at least how I think about it. Um, but I don't know. And the semester is almost over. Looking forward to that. Um, does this actually mean any kind of rest? Will you actually book off a couple of days for yourself where you actually do I no think work? The real question sign is: Will you actually book off a couple? Damn of it! Days and Damn it! Because <laughs> as we have just spent the, I mean, will you do that sign? Mm. Well, <laughs> okay. I have only recently started officially trying to book off some time from work, and so sometimes I've booked off a couple of days now and yeah mm. I, I will, I'll definitely try to I will mm. okay if I make a promise that I'll do it by the end of this weekend like I will book off the week of Christmas will that satisfy mm. you oh this isn't about satisfying me but I could get so much work done during that time okay um I mean <laughs> you know what's also work self-care yeah Yeah. You know what's also work? Boundaries. Yeah. And I don't know if you really think about it, but so there's another read on this, which is that if you ride yourself a little less hard, you might also be helping the people around you also not ride themselves as hard or allow other people around you to actually take the breaks they need because you're actually modeling that, but you're also not pushing this grueling pace that requires everyone to have to keep that same pace to keep up with you. Like That's it affects true. other people around you as well. And you may not recognize that. That's true. I, 
I have someone who is making me take breaks now. <laughs> Let's just leave it at that. <laughs> and it, and it's good. And now I, I care more. So I am going to be trying to be better. But it's unlearning so many habits that have gotten me through, like as a way of keeping focused, moving to a new country and having some sort of discipline. And it's like the habits that have also like contributed to my success with this. So there's a lot of fear of psychologically, I think, of letting go as well as just like, I guess, the feasibility of what things I could do or not do. I think you know what face I'm giving you right now. So. I know, I know, I know, Liz. It's like, do we even need the the new Zencaster ability to see video? Because I know, I know the faces <laughs> you're giving me. You know the faces I'm giving you sometimes. We can feel it, you know, near, far, wherever we are. The judgment faces that we're giving each other across the Atlantic Ocean. No, I'm honestly just giving you a mirror. I'm not giving you a face. I'm giving you a mirror. <laughs> but yes, how about we need to make sure that we book off some time. We're going to feed ourselves. We're going to get enough sleep. You're going to feed yourself and you're going to get enough sleep. Hey, I, I made beef bourguignon for the first time. And I made it in the Instant Pot. So I have enough beef stew to last me for well over a week. Okay. Yeah. You and, have food. And I've been eating vegetables regularly. And I've been exercising almost every day. Mm-hmm. That's good. <laughs> That's good, yeah. But maybe this is a good note to end it on in terms of us <laughs> trying to hold each other accountable. <laughs> Our COVID check-in. Check-ups. Our COVID check-in. Yeah. Maybe my goal is to finish the rest of the semester. Keep my students afloat. Um... I actually gave them all this assignment to just like, it's my, my effort assignment. It's like, okay, pick one thing <laughs> and you will spend the rest of this year just trying to do that one thing. What is the one thing that if you actually finish it this semester, you will be happy and you can leave in peace. And they told me what their one thing was. And I was like, that sounds reasonable. And then they're working on their one thing. And I feel like going from like, here's your whole PhD project to like, fix this one thing I think has been mentally helpful. The reality mm -hmm. is of course that one thing is very tantamount to their experience, their research. So I'm not actually lowering the bar for them, but I am making it more clear what they need to do. And I feel like it's easier to approach that goal now mm. to hit that mark before classes end. Mm -hmm. um, so that, so my goal is to keep the students going, um, keep myself going um, to do the minimum, um, which for me still means I'm quite adequate. I'm doing quite well, right? Like it's a recognition that even when I say minimum, it's still like more than sufficient. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It, it's picking my battles. It's like getting through my classes and um, staying, trying to stay consistent, trying to like prioritize what's really important right now and then get that done. And then not just what's important, but when is it important? As in some emergencies are not emergencies. Um, my, your emergency is not my emergency, right? Mm -hmm. And um, yeah. I feel like just dealing with my personal life and dealing with my family and the people that matter to me and stuff. I just had much pettier things that, um, 
I mean, care for myself and care for students, but also one thing that some things that I've unlocked finally in my life that have made a big difference are scheduling emails and also uh, snoozing them because I never did that before. And that's been a big game changer. And I've also finally been doing the thing where I've decided that in my regular workday, I'm only going to try to look at emails during certain times of the day. Hmm. Yeah, that that's also, a pretty- yeah, yeah, I know it's pretty basic, but I had never implemented it before. And that has really helped in terms of giving myself more time for other forms of work that are not just responding to email. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good strategy. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that these things are happening for you. Thanks. Um, it's very nice. Very fun. All right. I think that we've done a lot. <laughs> we, have, we have crossed off a lot of things. So um, we hope that you guys are also roasting the friends in your lives <laughs> and getting them to see themselves and that you also use that same mirror, right? And um, keep being the awesome people that we know you must be because you're listening to this podcast. Yes. And thanks for supporting us for five years or even if you started listening yesterday. Um, <laughs> it's kind of like we're we're in a relationship together. And we're glad to have you here, even if we have never met you before. Yeah. Here's the relationships. Woo. All right. Yep. Well, I am Liz, Dr. Wayne. And I'm Dr. Zainiao. And yeah, rate, review, subscribe, and support us on Patreon if you have a couple bucks. Take care. Yeah. People. Uni. Okay. <laughs>